Hello and welcome to Ancient Futures, where we stare at the abyss without losing our heart minds. Today I'm joined by Oren J. Sofa, who teaches Buddhist meditation, mindfulness and communication. He's also a thought-provoking author, and his latest book shares some very practical tips about how to face crisis without burning out or melting down or building a bunker to hide in. As a result, we have a wide-ranging chat about ways to awaken in everyday life, while also transforming the world. So that includes lots of qualities that it helps to embody, as well as the practice of non-violent communication. Now, Oren weaves together personal stories with activist history uh, in both his books and his teaching to talk about strategies for finding connection and avoiding the slide into polarisation. And I've found this personally quite helpful and uh, full of wise suggestions for communicating better not only with others but myself. <laughs> and uh, I've drawn uh, quite uh, closely on some of his writing in an earlier book while running a men's group. Just quickly before we get started, there's a link to Oren's website in the show notes where you can sign up for his newsletter and uh, find out more about his teaching and writing. Meanwhile, if you'd like to explore more of the parallels between Buddha Dharma and yogic traditions, you can join me for an online course at truthofyoga.com. And finally, if you uh, find the podcast helpful and want to support it, I'd be really grateful if you'd consider becoming a, a paying subscriber. Um, your donations really help to make this work possible and cover the costs of doing it. For now, though, let's start exploring the depths of the heart with Oren J. Sofa. So, Oren, welcome. Thanks. Hi, Daniel. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, and thank you also for sharing this book, um, which I have been enjoying. Uh, Your mm. Heart Was Made for This, uh, which is a very big title when we read the subtitle. Um, Practices for Meeting a World in Crisis with Courage, Integrity and Love. And uh, mm. I can't help but wonder, in the face of all of the chaos we see in the world around us, what's love got to do with it? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's got everything to do with it. Um I think you know from reading the book that I'm a new parent. I have a 16-month-old. And one of the things that's been remarkable about being around a very young, small human being um, is to see how um, how dependent we are on love and also how innate it is as human creatures. You know, mm -hmm. this little being, just the joy, the wonder, but also the love, just this... Um, very deep longing to be close, to share affection, um, to be loved. So I, I, I think, uh, I believe, and on some some level, know that uh, love is deeply interwoven into um, our being, our DNA. Uh, there's even been some work done on some of the sort of genetic and biological roots of love in our species, given that human beings have evolved to literally depend on um, close, warm, loving connection with other humans. So what's love got to do with that? You know, I think one what we see, one way of understanding what we see 
all across the world and across our communities and societies, whether we're looking at the ecological crisis, um, economic insecurity and income disparity, um, political uncertainty and division, uh, racism, oppression, all, all of these different manifestations of, of suffering and violence and oppression, these are all reflections of um, our heart being kind of dislocated or disconnected from love in different mm -hmm. ways. And, you know, one of the things that's been so eye-opening to me in my own practice and learning and study is, is how that a condition of being disconnected from love um, is influenced by so many different things, in, including, you know, the effects of history that are still present and alive with us today. So as we look at how to meet all that we're living through, I think one of the most fundamental things we can do um, individually and collectively um, is to reclaim the... Uh, the need for love that we have as human beings um, and find ways to allow love, not as a sentimental feeling, not as um, something wishy-washy, but as an incredible, uh, powerfully enduring force to inform all, all that we do and uh, see our fundamental interconnectedness. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it was a slightly tongue-in-cheek and provocative <laughs> question, I have to admit, but um, well, it's in but the, it's a good one, yeah. In the face of all of that, you know, um, mm. is, is is love like holding flowers up to the man with the machine gun? And uh, I yeah. suppose that's where we have to probe a little bit deeper. And uh, yeah, the whole structure of the book is is you know, built to do that, really. Um, yeah. If if your heart was made for this, the, the book is made for training the heart. By by right. the way, you. you sort of uh, yeah. presented in the introduction. So these qualities right. that constitute yeah. uh, a depth of uh, awareness and capacity for bringing mm -hmm. some of these you know, deeper expressions forward. Um, yeah. I just wonder if you could say a little bit about the, the, the choice of the topics. There are 26 and the idea mm -hmm. is almost that you could spend a couple of weeks on each one and have a year-long mm -hmm. training course. And That's right. Uh, I wondered if you'd actually thought about offering that yourself, first of all, and... <laughs> and, and I have, I have, and I probably will. Um, so it's January of 2024 as we're mm -hmm. uh, having this conversation, and um, I'm planning on doing something next year in 2025. Um, needed some time to wrap up some other work and just focus on talking about the book and getting it out there. So the idea is, you know, that next year I'll I'll offer some kind of online. Uh, online training program in different modules, kind of keeping pace with the different parts of the book. But uh, yeah, to answer your question, you know, how did I choose the different? So the book structured around these twenty-six different positive qualities. So you can call them traits or capacities that we all have as human mm -hmm. beings. Uh, everything from courage and kindness to concentration, energy, um, ease, determination, or resolve rest, joy, play. So many of the qualities, in fact, the greater part of them are drawn uh, directly from Buddhism. So mm. anyone who studies uh, or practices uh, the Buddhist path will will recognize the seven factors of awakening, the four divine abodes or Rama Viharas, the five spiritual powers, all of these different, you know, pedagogical lists. So I, I looked at those and and many of them repeat. And so I, I drew some of the most essential ones 
into into the book. And then I also considered, you know, well, what based on my own practice and just my own life and exploring being a human in this day and age, what are some of the things that I need and that I see others need that perhaps aren't stated so explicitly in the Buddhist lists, but that are there nonetheless mm. in the teaching? And so that's how, you know, there are a few qualities in the book, like uh, rest, for example. You don't hear the Buddha talk about rest so much other than saying, you know, I will be devoted to wakefulness <laughs> until I attain enlightenment. <laughs> and, you know, don't lie down and sleep kind of thing. That doesn't sound very restful, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but rest is actually really important, and it's there uh, when we look at the teachings within the sort of shamatha aspect of the practice, this calm abiding, this very restful way of being or play. Um, the Buddha was actually quite playful. If you read the early texts, you see he he makes jokes, he pokes fun at people. Um, and so humor and play, if you spend time with any kind of enlightened being, you'll see that they laugh a lot. There's a lot of humor. Yeah. And what's one of the signs of wisdom that to be able to laugh at ourselves and at life. Um, devotion. Devotion is very present in you know most uh, kinds of spiritual paths, um, but it doesn't show up explicitly in any of the lists, but it's there in the teachings. In fact, again, I don't know how many of your listeners are students of the Dharma, but um, in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is one of the core meditation texts in the insight meditation tradition and early Buddhist Theravada practice. And in modern mindfulness in theory, but... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, modern mindfulness, thank you, is is drawn pretty much directly from Satipatthana practice. You know, John Kabat-Zinn was studying with Joseph Goldstein and Sharon and doing Burmese Satipatthana practice when he founded mindfulness-based stress reduction. And if, if you look at his MBSR program, it's basically a Satipatthana curriculum. Mm -hmm. So there are three core qualities that keep getting repeated over and over and over again in that text, Sati Sampajanya. Sorry, the order is atapi sati sampajanya. So sati is mindfulness. Sampajanya is wisdom, often translated as full understanding, full awareness, as clear comprehension. It's a sense of uh, having a broader awareness and understanding of what's going on. <laughs> and then atapi. Atapi means ardor, zeal, wholeheartedness, devotion, like really, really putting yourself in there. So the qualities are drawn from the lists and also these other aspects of our uh, our heart and our life that I see as so essential. Hmm. And I'm curious about the word heart in that context, because mm. you mentioned several um, etymological ways in which heart mm. shows up in you know, Western mm. traditions. Um, the word right. courage, for example, coming from the Latin for heart, core. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I'm just curious also though about this word in, in Buddhist context, chitta, which uh, I'm mm -hmm. more from a, you know, a Hindu, I suppose one could call it yoga background and uh, yoga right. texts talk about this word chitta, um, very much to do with the mind and mastery yeah. of the mind. But uh, right. look it up in a Pali dictionary and it says the heart. So the heart yeah. and the mind very closely connected in this way. So training the mind is training the heart. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so in many, you know, Asian religious and philosophical traditions. I, I would assume the yoga tradition as well. And you can speak to this more than I can because I haven't haven't studied the yoga yoga texts. Um, the heart and the mind are not separate in the way that we think of them in Western philosophy. You know, this mm -hmm. this idea of the rational mind 
being um, distinct from the emotional heart and the passions and the mind needing to tame the heart and so forth. Um, the heart and the mind are connected in one and the, the seat of consciousness is here, right in the center of the chest rather than here in the head. So this is, you know, in the physical body, this is where the chittas often, we experience the chitta, even though it's immaterial, it's not actually located anywhere. We experience that sense of um, our feelings, our responses, being affected by things. So the chitta is that aspect of awareness that feels, that knows, um, that responds to the world. This is very much the sense of being um, a person and awareness is uh, the what we call the chitta. And um, yeah, so the chitta plays a central role in, in the Buddhist path because it's the chitta that's liberated. When the Buddha talks about awakening or enlightenment, it's the chitta that's freed. So the chitta, this seat of awareness of consciousness is um, what becomes entangled and afflicted by confusion, ignorance, um, all of the sort of not knotted patterns in awareness that snag on things where we resist and control and fight um, ourselves and others in life. And so it's the chitta that that actually awakens. Um, the rational mind uh, is in, in the Pali um, canon, is talked about in another way, um, manavinyana, so mental consciousness, um, which is sort of has a complex relationship to the chitta that I struggle to <laughs> to articulate. <laughs> um, but it's kind of like another channel of awareness. So we have yeah. like the body awareness, we feel things in the body, we have the mental linguistic awareness. So the the the, the mental awareness in, in Pali can in the early Buddhist philosophy is the sort of conceptual mind and then the chitta the is that um feeling sensing knowing awareness which is the, the fundamental sort of root of of being so your heart was made for this there's a few different meanings to that but i'll, I'll pause there and just toss it back to you to see you know on chitta yeah. if you wanted to add anything on yoga or um well really i suppose the distinction that pops up for me and uh, it's oversimplifying massively comes down to this distinction between uh, the yogic traditions focus on there being some kind of permanent self and uh, mm. that's what's located in the heart the atman in the yeah. earliest of the upanishads that talk about yoga is in the heart um yeah. but the problem's in the head <laughs> so right. in a way it's you know, tune out of the the, the, the mind and in, into this permanent presence that's there underneath everything mm. and the liberation is attained so it's obviously come from a similar yeah i guess um store of knowledge but with a different philosophical framework but it does yeah. i think get in the way of practice sometimes because practice is all about this you know control of the body control of the mind to liberate the self rather than mm. this you know work on the heart it's not something that's emphasized in quite the same way in yoga texts the similar messages creep through and the qualities that manifest and you know, the importance of ultimately compassion uh, is is mm -hmm. there but it's not got the same emphasis that uh, yeah. the buddha's teachings have yeah and i think you know one of the challenges daniel that 
I find as a practitioner and as a, a teacher of, of these traditions is the, the, are the limits of language and the, mm. um, the one dimensionality of texts. So even something like those phrases you used of like control the mind or control the body. So I think it's one of the reasons why it's so important to have a relationship with a teacher and to, to get guidance from someone who actually um, has some understanding and experience of what the teachings are pointing to because yeah you know the that 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 phrase which shows up in the buddhist tradition too in the translations you know anyone who's done a goenka course is a 12-day <laughs> vipassana trainings knows you know goenka is very big on control your mind um, but the word control has a lot of different meanings, a lot of different connotations. Most of the time, I think for Westerners, that word uh, connotes a certain kind of rigidity, contraction, stress, mm. and will. And those those forces are antithetical to liberation. We're not trying to contract and um, you know um, be rigid. There's the the sense of um, firmness and strength in the mind that we're cultivating um, are there to counter the overpowering momentum of our of our habits, these sankharas, in the service of letting go, of releasing the self-centered drive towards control. So, you know, I think we have to understand that process in a nuanced way and, and really have a felt sense for what it what it means. So, um, yeah, I, I often find that in the actual practice, when we look at these different traditions, when we actually get to some experience of what they're pointing to, they're often very, very consistent and aligned. So the, mm -hmm. the title is, is, has a few different aims behind it. Um, there's obviously the sort of surface meaning, you know, we kind of look around at the world today and whichever um, whichever facet of the challenge we might see, and it's always important for me to acknowledge all of the goodness and the beauty and the, <laughs> you know, amazing yeah. progress that continues to happen every day. It's so easy to have, um, to only see the negative. Um, but when we do open our awareness to the suffering and the uncertainty, and the difficulties we're facing it's a very hopeful message you know it's so easy to feel like i can't do it we can't do it ships going down <laughs> and to say hey as a, a, a friend and colleague of mine who has a another book with a very similar title kyra jewel lingo her title is we were made for these times yes which uh, you know has the same message your heart was made for this it's a very ancient um message actually from indigenous elders that says we are the ones we're waiting for right mm -hmm. we were each born into this time for a reason we each have a role to play so there's that sense of really wanting to um, connect people with a sense of empowerment and hope and possibility um, but then there's also the deeper meaning that um, i truly believe and um have seen through my own practice and also again through raising a child that our hearts are our heart meaning um our um 
conscious awareness, our our this incredible um, sensitive instrument of a human mind and body that we've been gifted mm. has as its underlying blueprint the potential and even I would say like the instructions to realize this vast, beautiful, immense potential to flower in love and joy and compassion and goodness. Mm -hmm. That's what our heart was made for, to open, to awaken, to um, to be the best we can be. And so my <laughs> hopefully not grandiose hope with this book is to <laughs> is to just is to remind all of us of that and to provide some nourishment for that journey to say you know whether you're working two jobs raising kids um or you know living in an ashram somewhere or anything in between um there are concrete practical things we can do every single day to realize that potential no, and I think there's something that comes through very clearly in the introduction that really underlines that. Uh, you quote mm. from uh, the Kusala Sutta about, you know, the fact mm. is that um, if it wasn't possible, the Buddha wouldn't tell us to do it. And he's saying, That's look, right. it's there. It's your it's your birthright. Um, yeah. But it doesn't just happen by accident. You know, there is there is well there is a path said. that some work has yeah. to be done. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well said, friend. So having listed all of these qualities uh, i'm curious uh, which seems the most important to you perhaps for yourself but also for the world as a whole oh mm, i can only speak to myself i don't know what's most important for the world mm. um because it's so complex yeah but um yeah i i think what's most important just on that broader level is is that we some of the things that seem most important one one is aspiration because we need aspiration is the sense of possibility it's a vision it's a vision it's uh, the declaration of independence it's i have a dream it's si se puede it's um you know che Guevara saying uh you know blank I'm not remembering the exact wording of the quote but you know the impossible is is realistic so aspiration is this is another world is possible right all these slogans the world social forum the united farmers workers union it's it's the sense that we can use our time and energy and relationships to to craft a better world for ourselves other creatures and future beings and without that we just languish we sink in despair uh we give up so we need a sense of possibility. We need a sense of vision for where we're going. And I think that's really, really essential. Mm. Um, because without that, we don't bring forth energy. We don't try. We don't learn. Um, that's one of the things I think that's most important. And and that is um, is hard to come by today because so many of the problems are so overwhelming. And so much of the media does not report on, so much of the mainstream media does not report on all of the tremendous work that's being done. Mm -hmm. So, you know, more and more the kind of um, emotional response, particularly to the climate crisis, the kind of anxiety and the despair, um, we need something to counter that. And one aspect of addressing those emotions is, is through meaning 
and having a sense of possibility. So that's that's one of the one of the most important ones. I think the other thing that I would say, um, just on this broader collective level, Daniel is. Mm -hmm. um, just the fundamental understanding that that we can change and grow right that all of us have innately the capacity to learn to grow and to be happier <laughs> that that, <laughs> that you know i mean depression is so so debilitating and challenging sometimes um, we lose sight of that um, knowledge, really, that our our brains, to, to come back to like a neuroscience metaphor, are, are plastic. They're malleable, yeah. and we can shape them. We can play an active role in, in how we experience the world instead of being a passive victim to our conditions. So I think those are those are two very important things for um, the moment we're in historically. As far as myself, you know, some of the things. So one of the things that's um, different for me about this book from my first book. Uh, my first book was uh, on communication. Say what mm. you mean. Is that um, this content? I've been talking about it as an emergent emergent content which means like i'm practicing with this stuff every day yeah it's it's hard it's not easy you know um as you know as a husband as a father um as a facilitator and teacher as a citizen uh and so again that the i'd say the one most fundamental thing that's important is is the same that i said of just knowing that we can make a difference internally and externally. Um, and then it's it's really a daily thing, you know? So I'll share um, of my little altar over there. You can't see it behind the, the Shoji screen here and Buddha Rupa, some pictures of my teachers, a photo of my late father. Um, and I have, I just put it out a few days ago, a couple of photos of myself as a child. And one of the things I'm just working on is a certain um, a certain intimacy and tenderness for my own vulnerability. And this has been, I don't know, decades <laughs> of, <laughs> of work. But it's, you know, I find the spiritual path is a little bit like a spiral. Yeah. And it seems like it was like... From Okay. Yeah, no, please. Metaphor from Hesse's Siddhartha, um, like this this path of the spiral around and around we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but it's not a it's not a two dimensional spiral. It's a three dimensional mm -hmm. spiral, right? And we keep we could we go around. And we're like this again, but actually, it's at a different level. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I talk about in the book some of my own um, trials with my vulnerability and self care, and you know, right now. Um, feel a different level of responsibility than I've ever known before in my life, particularly as a dad and also having lost my own father just a few months before the book came out. Um, and so, you know, there's this 
this little boy inside still who's scared is like, ah, it's too much. I can't do it. Help. And, um, you know, so, so what am I practicing? You know, I'm practicing, um, mindfulness. I'm practicing a certain kind of self-compassion and practicing, um, ease is a big one. You know, uh, a lot of my conditioning and my tendency is to push, is to shoulder the responsibility and push through. Um, and it's not, not only is it not necessary, but it's harmful to myself. And then I'm less resilient and available for the ones I love and for the work that I, I'm doing in the world. So it's a kind of on a daily basis, really just listening for what's needed. But those are some of the some of the qualities that I, I see being really relevant for me. And I, and I can add, um, courage has been a big one, um, particularly uh, since October 7th, um, as um, an American Jew, as somebody who's in a position of some, uh, I don't know, religious or spiritual uh, leadership, um, really having the courage to look at the history of the Middle East with a critical lens, um, to not fall into simplistic sound bites the way we see happening around the world, and to both hold the complexity of the history alongside my own values and integrity. Um, it took a lot of a lot of courage, so. Yeah, different qualities at different times needed. Oh, there's a lot there. Thank you for sharing that. Um, mm -hmm. I'd love to go back to the very beginning of your story, if you don't mind, because when you say about this uh, this mm -hmm. challenge of you know um, mm -hmm. taking the pressure off your shoulders, it reminds me of the story you tell about how you mm -hmm. first came to practice meditation uh, sure. as a young man at college, um, pushing, 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 um, yeah. and seemingly running away from yourself and then suddenly That's winding right. up, you know, in at the deep end in India, completely confronted by all the stuff you've been running away from. And I just wonder what it was you were so scared of at that time. Thank you. Excuse me. Um, Bless you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, a beautiful and deep question. Um, what are we so scared of? I think sometimes we're just scared of being afraid. Mm. One of the one of the deep realizations I had on one um, one long intensive retreat was it's not fear itself that's actually um, frightening. Um, it's not feeling safe enough to feel the fear. That's really really frightening. So. Yeah, I go back to the beginning of my own sort of spiritual journey. Um, I share in the book that uh, when I was a, a child, one of my family members started having a, a lot of uh, challenges mentally and emotionally and actually ended up spending um, a number of years uh, in and out of mental hospitals. So it was a very chaotic time emotionally in my family and as a child, very frightening um, time to see um, 
to see this person that I knew and loved, you know, so, so changed to see the stress on all of, all of us and the family unit. And this was in the, in the eighties, um, when the stigma around mental health was, I, you know, of different order of magnitude than it even is today, there's still a stigma. And, you know, then, so it was like, you know, don't talk about this. And so I, there were a lot of, um, emotions that I felt as a, as a little boy that I didn't know how to deal with and, and couldn't uh, process. And in spite of, um, my parents, uh, in fact, my, my mother's very, um, prescient and astute, um, impetus to <laughs> send me to therapists and stuff. Um, you know, I, I just, it just went underground. Some, something in, in me, saw that um this family needs me to be okay <laughs> like that or believe that you know like there's a, no room left for this little guy to to need anything because everyone is just maxed out so all of the fear and the anger and the grief um went underground and it didn't it didn't resurface again um until i started practicing in in my 20s so i was running so my my coping strategy was just to keep busy it was just like great like let's just focus on school i started acting i was you know running around to auditions in new york city as a child actor and um i stayed really focused and it was a very productive and useful coping mechanism but um you know one that continued to disconnect me from myself uh, until i i really started to try to slow down and and reclaim what I had lost, the sense of of openness and care, being carefree and and wonder and just knowing knowing my heart, um, and the 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 practice opened that up. And then I I did end up needing additional resources. The meditation was was useful, but it was incomplete. Um, and so yeah, I ended up getting involved with nonviolent communication and doing Peter Levine's somatic experiencing work for trauma healing and, and and all of those um really helped me to come to terms with and integrate some of some of what had happened i'm curious yeah. as to why you thought uh, the meditation sort of wasn't enough um i think it'd be very mm. helpful to hear that because uh, in yeah. lots of different ways practices are often incomplete and yeah yeah well, I think there's a lot of different. Oh, it's kind of interesting squeaky noise. Um, I think there's a lot of different um, reasons and conditions why something like a meditation practice might not be enough. And I think it depends on the individual and the context and the teacher and so forth. But what I can say for me was um, at the time, in the 90s, the late 90s and early 2000s, um, the insight meditation movement, which is a tradition that I'm, I'm a part of, the sort of Western branch of the early Buddhist practice and teachings, um, was, was less aware of trauma-informed practice mm -hmm. the way we are today. And so the theory behind the practice, the, the, the overarching theory was one of just sit with it, kind of, just keep being mindful. And when you're dealing with trauma, that's actually often uh, counterproductive because you end up just looping. 
And so there wasn't adequate support or guidance um, in in the um, in the actual sort of lineage of teachings themselves and how they were transmitted, and to a certain degree in many of the teachers I was practicing with. Um, that's that's one aspect. The other aspect is that. And I think you know many people on a contemplative or spiritual path who were um, sincere about their longing, not only for awakening but also for a certain kind, um, a certain kind of wholeness as a human being, a certain kind of um, integrated and thorough awakening will find that there are certain I'm looking for the right word here um, certain to use a more neutral word certain patterns in consciousness that were established through relationship, certain unskillful and painful patterns. We could call them wounds. We could call them, you know, whatever whatever you want to call call these um, forces that we experience as suffering. They they were created through relationship, and they're often um, healed and resolved more readily through relationship you know this is not unique wisdom to me <laughs> see you nodding it's a so, good point <laughs> you know yeah so whether whether that uh, that context for healing um and resolving and integrating relationally comes say through working with a therapist or a mental health professional whether it comes through being an intimate relationship or friendship or whether it comes through, you know, relationship with another being, like a a, a pet or animal or the earth, um, when when that imprint in consciousness, that wound, that pain, that pattern um, happens through relationship, it's not that it's impossible to heal it on one's own through meditation. It's just harder, and it takes longer, and it takes a lot more guidance. And so as I started to discover this, I was very fortunate to have some teachers who said, hey, you might want to check this out. <laughs> you know, this might help you. Yeah. So, you know, I might I might backtrack a little um, and soften what I said before in terms of like, I can't remember the word I used, if it was limited or incomplete, maybe. Incomplete it's not so much that the said, practice yeah. is incomplete, um, but just less... Um, less efficient in certain areas you know it's like why struggle with something for 10 years if you can take care of it in a year of therapy <laughs> right so you know um or by bringing in another modality and I, and I think this is both one of the um it's a great gift and also a certain liability of the sort of modern uh spiritual landscape is that we we have the um, access and uh, understanding uh, 
and resources to bring in sort of the complementary modalities uh, to our um, awakening journey. Um, and then it's it's also a liability because the danger, of course, as I'm sure you you see in your own work, is that um, we can end up sort of, uh, you know, dabbling yeah. in this and that and and not actually staying and going deep enough in any one practice, modality or tradition um, to really reap some kind of profound results and transformation and even just mixing and matching in unhelpful ways that we think fit together nicely mm. but are actually just reinforcing unhelpful tendencies and uh, totally rather than actually yeah, working on them right i'm curious in that context um just before we go on to talk a little bit about uh the nonviolent communication you alluded to because i'm very curious uh to to explore a little bit of uh how that uh, shaped your own journey as well as how it mm. might sort of dovetail with some of the themes of this second book um mm. i'd just like to go back to your emphasis on aspiration uh, and the mm. choice of that word in the context that you raised it because uh, it seemed yeah. to be a way of actually translating a word that's normally translated differently and uh, yeah <laughs> depending on pali or, or sanskrit sadashrata um this word that's usually faith and mm -hmm, i wondered mm -hmm. why not faith there and why not use uh, aspiration in a different context in relation to a different quality um yeah is something about faith that's uh triggering let's say for for readers perhaps yeah yeah i think so yeah um i i think that that word so again as as we as we talked about before acknowledge we're dealing with translation um, and the limits of language here. So all of these terms that come out of the yoga traditions and Buddhist tradition um, are the words themselves <laughs> in Pali or Sanskrit are translations of experiences. Of course. And then, so we're, we're, we're translating twice. We're translating from experience into a root language, and then we're translating from that root language into our native tongue, whether it's English or Spanish or another language. So how do we get back to as close as possible the experience um, that's being pointed to? So the word sadha um, that is often translated as faith, um, which is, I would say, an accurate but incomplete translation because sadha has many other meanings. Uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu translates it as conviction. Yeah. Or confidence. Confidence is a great is, translation, I think. Yeah. yeah, which is pointing to another aspect of it. Um, and uh, aspiration uh, is the way that Ajahn Sachito, one of my main teachers, translates it. And, and I, I really like that. So, yes, I find that many Westerners have um, a, a whole bunch of associations and connotations with faith, often that are not um, helpful and that get in the way of hearing the meaning of of this term and this aspect of our of ourselves and our relationship with our potential so it it get, comes across with these experiences we often have through our upbringing and uh you know um whatever religion we were raised with of blind faith of disempowerment of some kind of um irrational sensibility and so sadha is is that sense of faith it's it's what sharon salzberg who has a beautiful book called faith 
um, that I highly recommend for those who haven't read it. Uh, if you're interested to go more deeply into this quality of aspiration, she translates it in some ways as what you can place your heart upon. So another beautiful translation is trust. What do we really trust? So I talk in the chapter on aspiration about two aspects of the quality. So there is the receptive aspect of sadha, which is this aspect of trust or what we might ordinarily associate with faith, which is a kind of surrender into something uh, deeper, larger that we can rely on. You know, so in the Buddhist tradition, we talk about having faith in the Dharma or mm -hmm. in the triple gem in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. And there's a sense of what can you really place your heart upon with a sense of um, deep security and trust? What do you know to be true in the deepest way possible, whether you can put words on that or not? And how do you sense that? And that is often it's, it's an experience of of opening, of relaxing, of resting into the other side of it, the active, the more active aspect of sadha is this is the aspect of conviction, confidence, aspiration, possibility. It's that sense of I can do it. What am I pointing towards? The North Star. And I wanted to emphasize that more with the chapter, particularly at the beginning of the book, as an orienting principle for our lives, for our communities, and for our practice. I hear you now, and uh, I totally agree. We we need orientation. It's something I'm often discussing with, especially yoga people who like to say there's nowhere to go and nothing to do. And uh, you know, mm. actually, it's very important to have some sense of orientation. But uh, I suppose you know, just to, just to be nitpicky for a moment, um, please. I wonder. I wonder if it's not though the quality that enables an aspiration to be followed through. It's the trust on which you know the first step on the path is taken mm. um it is it is mm. the capacity to be able to bring forward an action that you know, embodies the aspiration so it's, mm. it seems to be a slightly different thing than the aspiration itself mm. are you i i kind of thought i was following you for a moment and then and then you, you, the meaning turns so i'm not sure let me say what i'm hearing and tell me if i'm getting it it's like um mm. are you saying that you know is the actual first step less the ability to aspire and more the capacity to trust something it seems to be that way in the sense of the meaning of the the term in the context that i'm familiar with it and yeah. uh, i think the yeah. yoga sutra potentially basically borrows the same ideas these you know, five right, spiritual right. powers foundation oh, yeah, yeah. is space on which right, one right. develops studio right. and so on yeah so forth. you know i hear you i hear you i think it's a really astute point and it it seems to me that it's not static that, or fixed, that it's a little bit of a chicken or the egg thing and that it might occur differently for different people. So for example, I know for me, just to speak personally, um, what drew me to the practice was I felt lost. I didn't know what I could trust. But there was some sense of longing, of mm -hmm. wanting to be healthier, to be happier. Um, and and that, that was a kind of forward movement. It was a kind of aspiration. It was some sense of there's got to be a way out. There's got to be a way to get back to myself. And so that was that more active as aspect of aspiration. And, you know, even as I'm saying that, like, okay, we, we could say it, well, then 
within that, isn't there some sense of touching it and resting into it? So it, it, it seems like they're intimately tied together. And in, in my case, it was really more the experience of it consciously was more that sense of forward movement and looking towards something than having anything I could rely on or trust. And I and I I see I see it in in practitioners and students is that you know some people come with some sense of um, a calling inside that they can rely on, and others come with a sense of seeking without even knowing what they're seeking. No, it's a good point. I mean, I've written yeah. in my own uh, work about how you know basically yoga is uh, a system of practice, not of belief, but you still have yeah. to have some faith that there's something worth trying, otherwise you'll never give it a go. Yeah. And so it's, exactly. it's, a, it's a complicated mix, but yeah, yeah, yeah. thanks for yeah. indulging me there and also totally. exhibiting some of what I wanted to talk about. There was a nice uh, yeah. NVC reflection of uh, yeah. just, just checking how, you know, I had intended my words and whether your hearing of them uh, accorded somehow with what it was I was hoping to communicate. And uh, right, right. I wonder if you might say a little bit about how you came to be interested in nonviolent communication and perhaps even first of all, what it actually is. Mm, yeah, sure. So, um, nonviolent communications. A um, as one trainer, um, Kit Miller, uh, former director of the Gandhi Institute, likes to say, it is an awareness discipline masquerading as a communication technique. <laughs> so many people mm. think of it just as a communication technique for having more effective conversations and deepening relationships and enhancing collaboration. But at the, at its root, it's, uh, it's actually a practice of awareness and investigating consciousness. And, um, and some, you know, for, for many people, it even takes on a certain kind of tone of a spiritual practice. Uh, so this is a very deep, um, system of exploring what it is to be human. It was founded by a man named Dr. Marshall Rosenberg in the 80s, who was a psychologist, and found through his own research and work that um, when he focused his attention on these specific aspects of our experience as human beings, um, it was easier to stay connected to compassion. He found this in himself. He also found it in the research he did and in, in people in many different walks of life and parts of the world who were, um, you know, under extreme duress or experiencing violence were able to refrain from dehumanizing others, uh, even others who were actively harming them and stay connected to some sense of shared humanity. So whether he was looking at um, the civil rights movement here in the United States and the capacity of uh, the nonviolent struggle for black liberation to not um, resort to violence, you know, segments of the civil rights movement to actually embody a sense of shared humanity or um, individuals and movements overseas, that one thing that was in common was the ability to be aware of um, our emotions and the underlying human needs that drive us. So um, nonviolent communication comes out of humanistic psychology and this basic um, premise that one of the things that makes us human is that we are all motivated in our lives and our actions consciously or unconsciously 
um, to fulfill certain underlying fundamental universal needs, these kind of core values that we have, these core motivating factors, um, everything from our physiological needs um, to more relational needs like belonging and dignity and connection and understanding and empathy to what we might call higher needs or spiritual needs, meaning, purpose, beauty, transcendence. And so I came across uh, Dr. Rosenberg, his work and uh, this practice um, in my early 20s as, again, I was noticing a gap between the aspirations in my meditation practice and my capacity to realize those aspirations in my relationships with my coworkers and my family. So I espoused deep values for compassion and patience and peace, which I was able to experience to a certain degree in my meditation. But when I had a disagreement with somebody or uh, even just talked to one of my parents or family members, somehow all of the mindfulness and compassion would evaporate very quickly. And so I recognized a need for some training, some practice to bridge that gap. And I found in nonviolent communication a very robust and practical uh, way of training myself to um, embody and inhabit the, the values of the meditative path that I was on. This uh, yeah, maxim attributed to Ramdas: if you think you're enlightened, go and spend a weekend with your parents or, mm -hmm. or some such. Yes. And uh, yeah. I certainly recognize that. Um, mm -hmm. I'd like to just drill down into one or two of the specifics, if you'd be, be willing. Um, mm. Your book, Say What You Mean, um, very good title, by the way. I really, really liked that. Uh, as somebody who, who who works with words and often finds himself using more words than he intended to and not necessarily the right ones, um, mm. it was a salutary reminder of uh, the importance of just taking some time to tune in. And uh, mm. the third of the points, if I remember rightly, is to, is to you know, focus on what's important, focus on what matters. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so it's actually taking some time to, to really tune into oneself, you know, which is where I think it comes back to some of the themes of this book. You know, what are our values? What are our underlying needs that uh, mm -hmm. we might wish to pursue in accordance with these values um, to be able to then stand a chance of expressing them in a way that's uh, skillful, that will talk about us and what we yes. need rather than telling everybody else what's wrong with them and why they didn't provide it. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if we want to say what we mean, we have to know first. <laughs> so how do we get up, to know what we mean? <laughs> and then so to many know, we have to listen very deeply. We have to, as you said, take time and really inquire. And and often, because we're um, working with decades, often of conditioning, mm -hmm. even when we listen deeply, it's sometimes quite confusing because we don't get a clear signal because there are all these um, sort of distortions from society and how we've learned to be aware of our feelings and needs, or in many cases, learned to not be aware of them, actually learned to disconnect from them. So one of the, the points I like to make um, that is not mine that I've, you know, heard my teachers and mentors in nonviolent communication make is that, you know, none of us come into this world um blaming other people is you know there's no baby that <laughs> blames 
his mummy or daddy and says, you know, bad mummy, I need milk. And it's just, it's just, wow, <laughs> I'm hungry, feed me, right? There's no sense of you're doing this wrong or you're bad. There's just this raw experience of the vulnerability of having an unmet need. Children, uh, very young children, um, before they begin to learn the language, uh, are unmediated embodiments of feelings and needs. Needs are met, baby's happy. Needs are not met, baby's unhappy. It's just very simple. And it's only through language that uh, and relationship and social conditioning that we begin to become disconnected um, from our emotions and our needs and learn to um, not only communicate with others, but actually tragically disconnect from this fundamental experience of our life energy. And this is what Dr. Rosenberg talked about, um, that the feelings and needs that we experience is an expression of our vitality, the the, pr the prana we talk about in um, South Asian traditions um, that manifests in these different ways, these different uh, movements of energy towards what I would characterize as wholeness. You know, Buddha said all beings want to be happy and what that happiness feels like and looks like, you know, at the most fundamental level, of course, is a kind of unmediated liberation. But in the context of our lives, it often appears in these different uh, relative facets of I want to be understood right now, or I, I long for some solitude or some connection or some meaning. And the process of knowing what matters, of focusing on what matters, entails relearning that inner language of experiencing our fundamental underlying needs as human beings. And that's a journey for many of us because it involves encountering all of the conditioning that has served to cover it up, the shame we feel, the um, obligation or uh, resentment around being responsible for others or not feeling like our needs matter, or it's not okay to have needs or want something, all of those messages we've internalized that are distortions of the, rea of the truth, which is that life is an experience of depending on one another like very very in very basic terms and in in more sort of relational practical terms and that there's no shame in that it's quite beautiful it's how we experience generosity and compassion and gratitude there's all these beautiful beautiful qualities that come uh, to our aid as relational interdependent beings um, so this is the invitation of the practice is to reclaim this aspect of being a part of life, being an interdependent part of, of life and learning to experience joy and uh, compassion and generosity and gratitude in that dance of being on the planet together. I was going to add dance. Um, the, the metaphor you used there is very evocative of this uh, play quality that you mentioned. Mm. You know, there is there's something mm. alive and it flows through us and uh, there's so much of uh, yeah. resistance to that in so many of the yeah. ways that we're conditioned. 
Yeah. Yeah. And we find that in, you know, we go come back to, I'm not sure, I think it's there in the, in the Hindu traditions, this Leela, right? The play, yeah. and you see it in the um, Tibetan traditions, the Vajrayana traditions, the sort of the play yeah. of emptiness and the relative world is the, the, the movement of the awakened heart is compassion. It's the responsiveness to needs. And so the, the practices we've been talking about, the Buddhist practice and um, nonviolent communication, I find very consistent because it's trying to bring us back to this awareness and way of being um, where we get out of the way and are able to be aware of and respond to needs, including our own, but without that sense of self-centeredness and attachment that demands that my needs are more important than yours and without the sense of um, unhealthy self-effacement and shame that says my needs don't matter and I'm only here to serve others, but actually um, being in healthy relationship with all of it. Could we call such a way of being heartfulness or would that be a little too cheesy? Ah, I like it. Yeah. Heartfulness. Why not? Yeah. Well, thank you, Aaron. Before we wind up, is there anything else in the book that uh, you would like to emphasize? Anything we haven't touched on that uh, it's important that people hear about? Mm. Thanks. I mean, we've covered so much. I really feel like we did a good, did a good job here. I'll just take a moment and see. Yeah, the only thing we haven't mentioned explicitly is this, this aspect of wise attention, right? So we, we've talked about, you know, the possibility of, of transformation and um, more or less pointed to the fact that we're always practicing something every day. We are training or shaping our, our hearts and our minds to behave and experience the world in certain ways. Um, how do we start to shift that? We need to begin to pay attention with some discernment. We actually yeah. have to get interested in how am I living? How am I thinking, perceiving, relating to myself and others in the world? And to start to learn how to change the channel, um, how to recognize the habits and patterns of heart mind that are detrimental to our own and others' well-being. Um, and and first, just, just be able to, to put our attention somewhere else more nourishing, not to avoid um, or pretend or ignore, the difficult uh, experiences or patterns, um, but just to begin to build a little bit more resilience and well-being inside so that then from that place of being more grounded, more resourced, more whole inside, we can turn towards some of the patterns of fear, or anger, or um, reactivity and uh, heal them and integrate those that energy into something more more helpful. Yeah, so that's maybe the only thing I'd add. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And would it be a case then that we can, through focusing on these positive qualities, sort of almost actively unwind some of the detrimental qualities, for example, by um, cultivating generosity, uh, selfishness also automatically kind of uh, fades away a little bit? Um, or is it more that we also have to think actively about unwinding those things? Yeah, well, I could share what my experience has been, and I'd be curious to hear yours too. Mm. It's 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 a little of both, mm. and, you know, and and that certainly, uh, to use the example you offered, the cultivation of generosity does often um, unwind or uh, dissolve a certain um, 
amount of self-centeredness because we begin to experience the joy and the nourishment of giving. And I found it, it is often the case that there are layers of whatever the afflictive pattern is that also require their own kind of investigation and attention to, to really, for the heart to really uh, know firsthand the suffering and learn to put it down. Yeah. No, I would uh, definitely echo that. I think for me, the biggest challenge has been, you know, being brave enough to be with the pain and to actually mm. allow it to be present without being consumed by it or trying to bury it. And uh, that's mm. an ongoing work for me, I think, <laughs> maybe with me for some time yet. But uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, thank you again. It's been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate your generosity of spirit and uh, of uh, sharing some of the wisdom that's inspired the books that you've been writing and uh, look forward to seeing this course spring up. Hopefully uh, I'll send yeah. a, a link to your uh, website in, in the show notes for the podcast so people can follow up there and keep tabs on on what's coming. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Daniel. Yeah. And if folks want to stay in touch, um, my email list is the best, you know, which you can get to mm -hmm. from my website is, is the best way I send out a note every now and then with some news about what's happening or a little teaching or reflection. So thanks for the uh, beautiful conversation for hosting. Well, likewise. No, thank you again.